My name is Dave Carlson, and uh, we are in the middle of a series, um, The Upside Down, do we have that slide? The Upside Down Gospel, I believe is what the name of it is. The slide will help me for sure, um, but it's called The Upside Down Gospel. Oh, it's behind me. Yeah, there it is. Upside Down. Uh, we are going through the Beatitudes. Um, first, let me introduce myself. My name is Dave Carlson. Uh, I'm an elder here, but you probably know me better based upon the comments that I get from all of you for my wife and for my children. Oh, you, you're Jalan's husband, aren't you? Oh, you're Caitlin Keeley or Kinsey's dad, right? So, yeah, I do go to church here too. Uh, I've been involved. Um, so, nice to meet you all. I'm Dave Carlson. Uh, so about a month or two ago, J.O. asked me if I would be willing to, uh, to talk about two of the Beatitudes. And he said, Dave, Dave, I, really, I, would, I would really appreciate it if you would teach that. Oh, twist my arm, right? I mean, by nature, I'm a very inquisitive type of person, more teaching-oriented than I am preaching-oriented. So today may be just a little bit different uh, than what you might be used to. Um, today I'll be covering hunger and thirst for righteousness and the pure of heart. So two of the Beatitudes, which would be in Matthew 5, so you may want to go to Matthew 5, uh, and we will begin. But first, because I am a total Bible geek, um, are there any other people that geek out over the Bible? Yeah, I am one of those people. So let me, Craig already laid some groundwork for the Beatitudes, but let me, let me jump back and talk about Matthew. So we're in the book of Matthew. Matthew is the author of the book of Matthew, I believe. Uh, some people don't believe that, believe it or not, but uh, I do. So Matthew, what do we know about Matthew? He was a tax collector. Uh, Matthew 9, Jesus found him, uh, and he was a tax collector. So how does that equate to he was a numbers guy. He was a linear thinker. Uh, he was a detailed-oriented person. We know that somewhat by his career, but when we let's dive just a little bit into the, the genius liter, uh, literary structure of this book. I love it when I find structure that is beyond just the, the casual reading. Um, so... Oops, you can't totally see it, but there is a, no, you can't see it at all. So let me describe it to you. No, you guys keep moving around, man. Help a brother out. So if you look at the structure of Matthew, he starts with a story, one through four, then he does a teaching, five through seven. You can see story, teaching, story, teaching, five times. He has five different teachings in the book, contained within the book of Matthew. Why would he maybe do that? Well, there are five books of the law or the Torah. Moses instituted this law, the first covenant. Jesus came in to institute a new covenant. And Jesus is, Matthew is representing Jesus as that fulfillment of the law. Another interesting thing about that, if we can put that slide up again, is that there is a mountain the first, we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. So there's a mountain, 
The next teaching occurs on land. The third teaching, he is from water, speaking from water, then land, and then he's back on the mountain again. Why do I take the time to belabor this? Besides, it's just cool, in my opinion. Um, (laughs) These are my Bible study folks right here, so they might get a little bit rowdy. Um, I think that the Beatitudes, you're going to find, we're going to see that there is structure within the Beatitudes as well. Starting from this point of being full of ourselves, starting from this point of being full of pride and self-centered and moving to a low point, and then God beginning to fill us and bringing us back to a, a new person, a new mountain. Um, some general observations that I would make about Matthew, Matthew 5, the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you haven't noticed, but Matthew is the only person who uses kingdom of heaven. Everybody else uses kingdom of God, and those verses can be side by side. Uh, One gospel writer, Matthew, says kingdom of heaven. The same story is kingdom of God. There are people who make doctrines out of this. I don't happen to be one of those people. I think it is that, uh, that Matthew is writing to a specific people group, the Jews, maybe more than the other ones, and Jewish people, if you, if you remember, they did not even dare utter the name of God. So Matthew does use kingdom of God five times, but uh, mainly he uses kingdom of heaven. Um, tenses. Okay, so can we go to the slide of all of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5? Thank you. Awesome. Let me come over here so I can see it. Uh, so you will notice that 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next six are, shall be, and then the last one, which is actually 10, let's uh, work with me just a minute here, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I actually believe that 11 is just an add-on to that eighth beatitude because if you read it closely, it's a different structure, completely different structure. And Paul, being the awesome guy that he is, he thinks linearly. Some of you folks don't think like that, and I'm praying for you guys um, (laughs) that God would reveal himself to you, but I'm just kidding. Not really, but... um, So why does he do that? Why does he change tenses? I believe one of the reasons is that the kingdom of God is now, but the kingdom of God is yet to come, right? In a word that you may be familiar with is betrothal. There was a betrothal before marriage. Uh, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. So in a very real sense, in their time, they were married, he would have had to give her a bill of divorce, even in their betrothal, but it wasn't consummated. We are living in the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, in a betrothal sense. So it is very real, but it will be consummated at the wedding feast. Good, I'm glad you guys like that, because sometimes things that are really cool to me, other people don't think it's that cool. 
<laughs> so part of why I took the time to point out some of these things is that if you look at, once again, that slide that we just had up there, there are some interesting things in the first Beatitudes, and I'm exercising these people super hard, I'm sorry. <laughs> what are the first three things? If you remember, you're poor, you're mourning, right? Poor in spirit, you're mourning, you're meek. Those sound like emptying yourself, right? Those sound like getting rid of something that is in your life. And today we're talking about righteousness, which I believe is a transition in the Beatitudes. It's, oh, don't do that to me. Leave it up there, please. Uh, I'll tell you when to take it down. Um, <laughs> blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I believe is a transition verse that transitions from this emptying to beginning to fill, merciful, a person who is pure in heart, a person who is a peacemaker. There's so much peace that you're filled with that you can make it around you. A person who is so convicted by their faith, so firm in their faith that they can withstand persecution. I think that there is a, a, a movement from emptying ourselves to filling ourselves with righteousness. Okay, so my first point, uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness. I am a detail-oriented person, so when I've read this verse probably like 600 times, uh, and I've read it slowly, I've read it out loud, I've read it one word at a time, I've... This is just obsessive part of my personality. But I, one of the things I wondered is like hunger and thirst. You would kind of think hunger and thirst for God, right? I mean, yeah. but it says hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, and you will be filled. Why righteousness? Because I think God knows we have a big problem with trying to be self-righteous. The Pharisees... Human nature is to try to look, for me, to try to look good to all of you so that you think I'm a good guy. And God's dealing with that in the Beatitudes. He's saying, empty yourself of that. I want you to be full of something different than that. He says, hunger and thirst. I, um, I wear these cowboy boots actually for a reason. We do raise livestock, and I've raised... <laughs> Lots of things, but lambs is one of the things that I have raised. And I've, we've had several lambs birthed on our property, and it's such a fun thing to watch them. And they hit the ground, and they, mom licks them, and they finally get up. And you know what the first thing they do? Boom. They go to mom and start eating. I don't have to tell them to do that. I don't have to make sure they do that. They instinctually know to do that. It always concerns me when I see brand new Christians who aren't hungry, who aren't born hungry. I think it should be something that we're born with. It's a part of being born again, is being born thirsty and born hungry. When I was born again, 
the Bible immediately, I was like magnetically drawn to the word of God to know, God, what do you have for me? I was immediately drawn to be in relationship with people. I was hungry for those things. The, I want to camp on righteousness for just a moment um, because I think my, my heart is, and I, I pray that I can, can convey this well, when we read the Beatitudes, sometimes we hear works. Sometimes we, okay, I got to be all those things. Uh, I got to be merciful so that someday when God judges me, I got I to gotta do that. I got to be pure. I got to be all those, and we, I got to be righteous. There is, um, there's two ideas of right. There is imparted righteousness, and there is imputed righteousness. And I'll, I'll describe imputed if you don't know, but let me start with imparted. We are imparted things by God. Gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Things that, that are slowly, little by little, changed in our life. This morning, I woke up early. I woke up at like 4.30, and finally at 4.45, I got up and went down to my office, which is a little bit chilly, and um, I worked on kind of preparing the message and um, finishing it. I had actually spent a fair amount of time, but I freak out at the last minute, as you might imagine. Um, and so I was down there for not too long, half hour, 45 minutes, and I went back up into the bed where my wife had been was cozily laying, and my hands were cold and my feet were cold. And so I reached over. And I, she won't notice if I just put my hand on her back. She did notice. She did notice that, and she resisted imparting heat to me. Very painful. Impartation happens little by little. You don't just boom, touch, and okay, I'm, I'm hot. My wife is at this particular age. She gets hot really quick sometimes and cold. Um, <laughs> is that bad? Sometimes I don't know when things are bad to say. Um, but impartation happens slowly over time. The other concept of righteousness is imputation. Imputation is a word that simply means, so it means to reckon. And I get that you guys may not, if you're from the South, my mother was raised, her, my grandfather who passed before I met him, but he was from Tennessee. So my mother would use the term reckon. I reckon so. It's an accounting term. Uh, it is to calculate, to consider, to, to place into another's account. If you read, and if you're struggling with this word, read uh, Romans 4, because that word in forms is used 11 times. It's a big deal to Paul, that he wants us to understand that righteousness is imputed to you. It's a moment in time when your faith activates God's righteousness in your life. And what messes it up is when you think you did something to earn it. When you think, ah, it's because, it's because I'm, I'm really good looking, or I am a pretty good person, or I have only broken a couple of the Ten Commandments, and so I'm pretty good. All of that stuff diminishes the grace of God in our lives. 
and we're to hunger and thirst for God's imputed righteousness. Now, the Bible does spend a fair amount of time, these two concepts, this, this imputed righteousness. There is also a virtuous life that flows out of that, but it's because God did the work in our life, and there's an outflow of that that changes, and slowly God begins to impart in us and impart in us the fruit of the Spirit, goodness. There is a, a saying that says, you cannot become good until you've already become perfect. Does that make sense? Yeah. Kind of got to let that sink in a little bit, that God makes us perfect with his imputed righteousness. We have a position in God. The rest of our life, we are possessing that position that we have already. Why is that hugely, massively important? Because many people don't come to God because they're like, ah, I'm, I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough or whatever that reason. God says, empty yourself. That's what the Beatitudes are really about, emptying yourself and coming to that point where you're hungering and thirst for God's righteousness to be imputed to you. You can't earn it. You can't. There's nothing that we can do. It's a work of God through faith. Romans 4, 20 through 25, to just, just put, the, put the ending on this word imputed. It's talking about Abraham. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. That's awesome. I remember that moment when I was 19 years old and guilt and shame and coming to realize that I had messed my life up. And it was crushing me. And that moment when I turned to God and said, I need you. I've broken my life. And I was emptied of myself. And God immediately imputed righteousness to me. And it did this strange... I, I knew that there would be consequences to the stupid things that I had done. I didn't even really care about the consequences. I was like, man, I am free. I am free. There might be consequences. I'm willing to walk through those consequences with God because I am free. The other thing I think about um, when I think about righteousness is a word that only happens uh, a couple times in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33. It's one of the names of God. You guys familiar with the names? of? There's many character, characteristics of God revealed uh, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. But there is one that is called Jehovah Sitkanu. You ever heard that? Yes. Jehovah Sitkanu. Uh, the Lord is our righteousness. 
And I was going to do this cool, par- look, at, look at the two times it appears, and it's super cool, but I'm not going to go into it. You go, you'll have to do that on your own. Um, as I think about righteousness, there, I uh, attended a church where they had made these banners of the names of God. And one of them was Jehovah Sidkenu. And the responsibility of the small groups was to create these. And they they created them out of fabric and did amazing things. And Jehovah Sidkenu was a man with the Lord putting a beautiful robe on him. And the story was that originally, when they put this all together, it had the man's hands receiving it. And kind of went, people looked at it and said, yeah, the hands really need to go. The man's hands really need to go because we don't have anything to do with it. We, that robe that God places on us is completely his work. We need to hear that. Whether you're not a believer this morning, whether you're a new believer, or whether you've been a believer for many years, because we have a problem with remembering that righteousness is placed on us by God and that we mess it up when we try to do something to create that righteousness in us. So part of what righteousness is, you took it down, yeah? I said, I didn't tell you to take it down. Please, help me, man. If you look at the last three Beatitudes, it is, okay. Um, I think it is describing righteousness. I, I believe it's describing the outflow of righteousness in my life and in your life. That it is, what does righteousness look on, like on us? It looks like being merciful. It looks like being pure in heart. It looks like being a peacemaker. It looks like being a person who is so convinced of what God has done that you're willing to face persecution. I want to move on to, um, yes, uh, move on to blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That word pure is kind of like scary, right? <laughs> when you're like, my life is supposed to be pure. My life is, there are points in my life that are, God is still working on. <laughs> there is not, uh, well, I won't use all of my examples. You can come up with your own. Um, I believe what that purity is talking about is actually talking about focus. It's talking about a heart, number one. He's talking about our heart, right? He's not necessarily talking about your behavior. He's talking about something that changes from the inside out, but a single focus, a a not being double-minded. As I've gotten older, I have started wearing earplugs, but no, that's a different story. Um, as I've gotten older, I have had to get these glasses because I can't see things up close. I can see all of you fine. I have 2020 vision out there, but if I want to read something, I have to put glasses on because it's not a pure or a focused vision that I have. Also, what I have to do is sometimes I put my glasses on so I can see, and I realize I still can't see because I need to clean them. Right. I need to clean them off. Being pure of heart is that illustration. 
of putting that focus of our heart upon God and God alone. Not being double-minded, not uh, that thing that we have been emptied of and that thing that we are transitioning to, to not lose focus of that. To be single-minded in the pursuit of God. That he is our all and all. That it slowly over time doesn't become all of the things that we as Americans become complacent and comfortable in. Um, we own 120 acres, and so maintaining that acreage um, can be something that is consuming. I can't allow the fact of life, the entanglements of life, to cause my heart to be shifted towards other things besides God. And they shall, the pure of heart shall see God, right? A person who is, has a single heart. I'm not going to say anything. Lord, help me. Um, the, uh, a person who is focused on God shall see God. Do you remember Moses back in Exodus when God puts him in the cleft of the rock and says, you know, you can, you can look at my back, but you're, you can't see me. The pure of heart, the person who is consumed by God, the promise is they shall see God face to face, not through a mirror dimly or a glass dimly, depending upon your translation, but you're going to see God. That is a, a longing of my heart, is to be in such a relationship with God that I see him. And I do see him. Presently, I currently, I'm, I'm one with him, I'm in Christ, but there is a day in the eschaton that I will see him face to face, that I will come to know him as a, as a friend talks to another one, and I am excited for that day. I would say that sometimes the Beatitudes can be overwhelming, but I don't think it needs to be. I think it's just as simple as coming humbly to God and emptying yourself, longing for God's touch in your life. And there's a lot of ways that we mess our life up. A lot of pride, a lot of arrogance, a lot of religiosity. I think the church can be filled with people who have not emptied themselves. He's speaking to the Pharisees, remember? They were the established, it wasn't called church at that time. Um, he was speaking to the religious people of his time, and they did not have ears to hear because they wanted to be righteous themselves. And he says, empty yourself of that. And hunger and thirst for true righteousness, which only comes from God. 